Pro Podcast. Today I have with me Kevin Christopher. This is episode 37 and we are live. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us. Um, if you like this episode, uh, please follow us at becomecgpro.com. Find out more about what we do as a school. But um, yeah, we have a couple of announcements at the beginning. I will just say that we uh, we have a another po podcast on January the 10th with um, Ryan Zingler from Crystal Dynamics, and we have some more classes starting up in the new year. So um, follow us at becomecgpro.com. But uh, back to the podcast, um, I, I'm just going to introduce our special guest for today. So um, Kevin Christopher is a post-production supervisor and solutions architect at Wright Media who have a, a great facility over in Atlanta and a big LED volume. Um, Kevin's had a really, really interesting history coming from architecture and engineering and film restoration into um, visual effects and post-production and virtual production, which is what he's focused on. Um, and yeah, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you. So, um, yeah, I'd love to start this off. Just kind of ask you a little bit about your your path here because it's a really it's a really interesting one. Uh, everybody has a, a story and how they got to where they are. Um, you have some quite unique moments in it. So, what 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 was it that that kind of led you to led you down this path? What were some kind of early inspirations or experiences that pointed you in this direction? Well, I mean, like everybody. Um, I, I loved Star Wars, I loved movies, I loved visual effects, but I, I thought I had to make a living. So I, I went and got a degree in architecture from Georgia Tech. And long about my uh, junior year, they, I was working for the, uh, the architecture department and as kind of a night manager for the computer lab. And they said, Oh, well, here's a code to this room over here, and it's got this software. It's this new software called 3D Studio, and that was back in the DOS days. Uh, go in there and learn this and see what you see what you can do with it. And that just sort of sent me over the edge. I was I was hooked from the beginning, started learning 3D Studio, got out of uh, got out of college, decided that, you know, what I wanted to do was do 3D visualizations for architects. I wasn't going to sit there on a drawing board all day. I was going to, I was going to create something uh, in the computer and, and started doing that. And after about six months of bugging one of the dealers in town, they invited me in to uh, start doing seminars for them. And the next thing I know, I was teaching 3D studio and, and, and 3D design work. And all of a sudden, I had a business that was doing nothing but 3D visualization, which is where I thought I was you know, going to be for the longest time. And uh, after that, other, other places started saying, hey, well, since you're doing this, can you, can you do stuff more along the lines of you know, media stuff, what TV broadcast? It's basically the same tools. And so I started doing more visual effects work in 3D and and doing that and from then on I just it just kind of snowballed uh, until I ended up at a place called Cinepost here in Atlanta where they had a, a, a new department and that new department was uh, DVD authoring and they needed somebody to generate you know menus and interactive stuff which I had been doing for some of these presentations and uh, then I got the chance to learn about you know, putting film back together, uh, doing telecine work, doing color correction, uh, eventually led to film restoration. And then uh, as an editor and, and post-production supervisor. So it kind of just all snowballed out of uh, this happenstance thing from my little night job at the university uh, into a, a, a different kind of career. So what, what was it about the uh, 3D tool and 3D Studio Max? I think it was it was similar for me <clears throat> in the beginning, although Maya, um, but 3D Studio Max was really the first one I started using properly. What was it? What was it about 3D that really 
spoke to you? What was what was so fun about it? Um, just being able to immediately, you know, create something and, and have it right there. I didn't have to wait to draw drawings and, and, and do construction documentation and wait for a building to come out of the ground. I could do it all in the computer and, and simulate it right there and be able to fly around and do all that. That was that was one of the things that just I was like, I was hooked at that point. Right. Were there, were there some kind of movies or things that involved special effects back then that drove the, any of the inspiration for you? Is it mainly the architecture in the beginning? Well, I mean, like I said, I, just like everybody else in the industry, I loved Star Wars. I loved the yeah. Empire Strikes Back. I loved all of that, that, that kind of stuff. And when I started in 3D, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just 3D Studio Max. It was actually 3D Studio DOS. Right. So, it, you know, all the movie stuff was happening on the big, uh, you know, high-end computers. It was, this was like the very first part of being able to do it on a computer that I could afford. And that was something that, that really inspired me. I was like, I can now do this um, on something that I can go and, and build myself and not have to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Although I did spend thousands of dollars, yeah. but uh, I didn't have to spend the kind of money that, uh, you know, some of the bigger places were doing. So it, it really allowed me to, uh, sort of, you know, create this career for myself that, um, you know, otherwise would not have happened. Right. Yeah. Similar for, for me again, I think, Maya at that point was really only runnable on an SGI and those were hundreds of thousands of dollars and the even the software was tens of thousands of dollars for a license is really inaccessible. <clears throat> so some some of these things happening was um, make it some of it made it more accessible more um, so you could experiment on it and have, get some time on the box. And I, I guess looking flash forwards to now where it's it's even better in, in a lot of ways. Um, it must be, uh, how does it feel now kind of seeing Unreal Engine and, and Blender and things like that that are free uh, even? Blender being free has, has allowed us to really develop a, a, a new generation of 3D artists here, right? Mm. Um, that's, that's really helped propel us. And also uh, Unreal Engine, once we started getting into the, the real-time Unreal Engine stuff, that really opened up a, a lot of different doors. Everything from just from previs. Uh, one of the things that we specialize here at, at Wright is uh, high-speed cinematography, and we do high-speed cinematography with uh, uh, robotics. We have uh, two robots that we use, and being able to uh, previs all of that in Unreal is uh, something that has really opened up a lot of avenues for us. We've done visual or we've done high speed photography on, on many uh, high budget features. And that's that's been one of the things that has driven us into virtual production was that that camera robot and high speed. Right. OK, so something that, that you guys are well known for. Well, I definitely love to ask some questions about that. Um, so had just taking a step back for a second you you talked to, you mentioned um film restoration i'd love to love to because that seems like something you were really into is um can you tell me a little bit more about what that involved sure i mean film restoration can involve uh everything from correcting film damage to uh taking different elements from from other, from different uh reels and putting them together in order to create a, a full movie. Uh, one of the one of the uh, largest film restorations I worked on was for a, uh, a 1950s Bob Hope movie with Catherine Hepburn called uh, The Iron Petticoat. And we were able, able to actually go back and scan the original camera negative and then scan also the Technicolor three strip and put the movie back together based off of a telecine from Bob Hope's uh, collection that he had. And, it, you know, you, you, it takes a lot of different disciplines in order to put that film restoration together. 
because we're either taking the camera negative or we're taking a, a film print or we're taking the Technicolor three strip and we've got to make it all match and color correction and, and figure out which elements are actually the best and put it back together and then correct any of the other imperfections uh, along the way. Is that going through that, um, how did that kind of influence the, the later parts of your career, the more recent parts where you, you got more involved in visual effects and post-production and production and virtual production of new, of new efforts? How did that kind of restoration project affect how you work? Well, I mean, the restoration projects, um, one gave me this huge amount of organization skill uh, that mm. I, I didn't necessarily have. Um, but what it also did was, as we were doing all these restorations for DVD and, and, and for rebroadcast on uh, TCM, then it allowed me to look at a bunch of different films that I would not necessarily have watched and learn about filmmaking and, and be able to analyze uh, films and lighting and things of that nature, which then further informed, you know, how I approach the post-production process. And uh, when I when I joined Wright Media, I joined Wright Media as a as a post-production uh, person. And then once we started doing the robots, that's when I said, hey, we need to be able to take the data out of these robots and, and tie it to Unreal. And that's, that's sort of what sparked the journey into virtual production was because we had a robotic camera and it already knew where it was positionally in space. So we didn't have to do camera tracking. We didn't have to worry about how, where that data was coming from. The robot was absolute. It knew it had its own zero point and it could spit out the data um, perfectly in sync with what the camera, the robot was doing. So, uh, our first goal was to, hey, can we get this data inside of Unreal and be able to use it? And the answer, of course, was yes, uh, which started our, our development of the LiveLink plugin for uh, the Mark Roberts motion control system. So, to, yeah, tell me tell me a little bit about Wright Media and, um, and what your role is there. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, as the solutions architect, I'm the guy that is supposed to look at all of the different disciplines of right media and and determine how we're going to use these best to approach certain projects. And uh, that may include robotics, it may include high speed and definitely includes virtual production. So it's sort of a uh, what are our resources? How are we going to do this? And and our goal always here, right, is how much of this can we get in camera without just doing a whole bunch of green screen and a whole bunch of a blue screen? How much of it can we get in camera practically? We've always been about uh, being able to trigger fire and explosions and different things and be able to catch those on the high speed camera. And uh, that's kind of what we want to be able to do with virtual production. Uh, the latest production that we've worked on, we've, we were controlling DMX lighting, we we're controlling all kinds of environmental, all of that stuff being triggered via sequences in Unreal on the volume real time. Right. Yeah. So you, you previous to that, previous to what, previous to having the volume, um, you're doing mainly green screen kind of visual effects type work. Yeah, we did a lot of a lot of green screen uh, visual effects work. Um, again, when we're using the robot, we had the tracking information. We can we can do camera moves where we can shoot the same move over and over and over again. So we're able to create layered uh, VFX plates, uh, which makes it really convenient to doing certain effects because you're you're able to then go into compositing with more than just one layer you've got multiple layers and they all line up automatically right yeah going going back to the kind of star wars days where where i guess that emerged and then doing it all optically but as opposed to that you're doing it digitally but having that much more control because you have the robot yeah correct so um 
how do you speaking of, about the robot um given that you you guys use it so much what um what drives the motion of the robot do you like do handheld moves and mocap them and then play them back through the robot or do you have animators um animate them or how does how does that work so it really depends a lot of times we will get um scans of a location someone will go in and do a lidar scan we will then uh plan out the move uh inside of maya uh, as an animation and sometimes that's that's the appropriate method for doing it other times it's something like a stunt if we're doing stunts with a robot it's a little bit different and we've got a couple of tools in our basket one of which is using an ipad to actually mimic a camera and we have it on a system where we can move the ipad around and that data is then translated into the robot and we never drive the robot directly with any of these tools it's just kind of a safety thing so we'll take that data send it over to the robot it will analyze it and make sure that it can provide it can produce those moves safely and if we have to we can tweak them a bit and then we're able to repeat that move over and over again so we can get both the ultra smooth animatable uh, path for the robot camera or we can get the more handheld it just really depends on what the shot calls for right yeah that makes sense making sure that it's the right type of shot for storytelling story being the the driver yeah so what um you mentioned the safety aspect is is that uh something that i guess because the robot uh is it's not necessarily like the Terminator. It's not going to come alive and go after you, but <laughs> something along those lines that you've got to make sure that the move isn't going to be dangerous for the robot and or the crew. Well, I mean, what we what we want to do is we want to make sure that because the robot is big and it does and it can knock things over. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to make sure that what we're doing, the move that we're creating uh, is done in a, in a safe manner. It's, you know, both aesthetically pleasing to the eye with the kind of move it is, but also, you know, safe for everybody else. So we always have, we don't use something that drives the robot live. We, we will perform these moves with our tools and then import that into the robot so that we can evaluate it and, and make sure that everything is going as planned. Um, it's, it's one of those things where you don't, you don't want it to do anything unpredictable. So you don't want to lose communication with it. So having a wireless, uh, you know, gimbal or something to to manipulate the the robot is not a good idea. So you know, we just try to do it as safely as possible. That makes sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. And do you um, in in figuring out whether it's safe, does it have kind of like its own diagnostics for the move, or does it just try it and then? find no, out it, by doing <laughs> oh no it it definitely has its own uh its own diagnostics it, there's an entire kinematics model about how the robot can move and how fast it can move in in each direction and and whether or not the moves can can be accomplished with you know the mechanical arm so uh it doesn't become a safety thing at that point it becomes a is this possible with the the uh, ik model that is built into the to the robot and can we can we produce this move at this speed you know without creating camera shutter got it so do you presumably have to run it through while you're film while you're recording the motion just to check it in case you have to go re-record the move if it doesn't work right yeah i mean we, we bring it in it immediately tells us hey the that's not going to work or, or it will work. And then we, we can run the moves. And the nice thing about the software is it, it's much like any other animation software. You can, you can take the splines and you can tweak the splines and you can adjust, uh, adjust everything and, and smooth out any of the places that are just too rough or don't, don't seem to work out really well. You know, sometimes when you're trying to go from point A to point B, there's, uh, the, the curve, you, you get what's the, used to be in um, Illustrator, too many knots in the curve. 
you get too many points in the curve and it and it gets a little on the jerky side so you just can go in and delete those points out and smooth out the curve and, and move on right yeah <clears throat> do you um do you i guess kind of know after using it for a while what um things it's likely to be able to do and not do and kind of like be able to be able to advise the operator or the person animating or whatever say oh that's just not going to work don't try it or like well i guess maybe the question would be what what makes what's it good for and what's it not in terms of robot the it's really good for a, a lot of things i mean we we've used it for everything for for example they they had a shot in uh one of the one of the shows here that was shot here in atlanta where they did this car running around the streets and they then took that in and camera tracked it and created a, a camera solve and then exported that path and then wanted the robot to do exactly that same move and we were able to um, actually sort of cheat it by by changing exactly how fast the robot moves versus how fast the arm moves and and create this shot where they then composited the actor standing on top of the roof of the car and you know that's that's one way of, of using it so you you're creating a shot where it would not be safe for someone to be standing on top of a car as it's riding through the the streets of of a downtown and and we were able to achieve that with the robot by using those techniques so you actually had the robot mounted on the car no 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 the the robot was the robot was not even used until uh later on so they just took the the plates that they shot and then camera tracked it and then brought that camera track solution uh, into maya then we took our robot model inside of Maya and hooked that camera up to it. And we were able to create uh, the same camera move and then we could recreate it on a sound stage. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are, you, are you typically using it in the sound stage in the volume? Do you ever take it out on the road? Oh yeah, it goes on the, it goes on the road. We can load the thing on a truck and, and be anywhere with it and, and set up uh, fairly quickly. I mean, we the we can set it up once we land at a location in about two hours, and then oh. we're we're ready to start blocking shots and and planning everything out, uh, or we've already pre planned it and we can just load the move in and show show the director immediately. Okay, here's the move, uh, and of course the first thing they say is, "Can it go faster?" <laughs> I'm sure. Can we make it go faster? <laughs> And I'm sure your answer is a bit. Uh, there's, Sometimes. There's, there's the, our operator, Colin Quinn, is, is a master at the, at the software. So he, he knows how to tune it and make it go faster or at least make it seem like it's going faster by, by changing the way uh, you, you angle the camera and how you can move the camera versus moving the arm um, itself on the track. So there's there are, there are always ways to make things look like they're going faster yeah um so how do you prepare for this presuming that you do quite a lot of tech viz and previs for operating this thing um, yeah we we do uh, a fair amount of it sometimes there's there's a lot of pre-planning uh visual effects supervisors will come in and say here's the camera move I want. And they'll have already done it in Maya and, and we'll say, okay, well, here's the camera move that you think you want. Um, and then a lot of times we're doing all of the planning. Somebody says, well, I know I want a robotic shot, but I'm not exactly sure how we're going to make this, this work. And we'll actually do all of the, the shot planning and blocking uh, prior to, to going on set. And that's where the the scans the lidar scans come come into play heavily what what tools do you typically use for the for that kind of visualization or pre-planning 
Um, I mean, we're, we're using almost everything. So whether or not we're using a Faro or one of the other scanners, we're always, we're always looking at different things. I mean, we've even used uh, uh, reality capture to capture some scenes in order to be able to pre-plan some of the, some of the shots. Right. And uh, software wise, visualization wise, um, what 3d tools? Well, the 3d tools that, you know, that we use the most, at least for the robot is concerned, is going to always be in, in Maya, our, our simulation software that has the built-in uh, kinematics model and knows exactly how fast each part of the robot can move is all built uh, on a tool inside of Maya. So that's, that's always going to happen inside of Maya. And then uh, once it's, once it's ready to go back out to, to be used, we're in the, the uh, special software for the robot called Flare. Okay. Remind me the, the name of the robot again, or like the mate, the, the mate. It's the Mark Roberts motion control. And it's right. what we have is a bolt. And then right. we also have a, a bolt junior plus, which is this smaller sibling. Got it. Um, does it have a name like a pet name, a nickname? <laughs> I don't, this one doesn't have a, a nickname. Our first robot had a nickname. We, we rest, rescued our first robot from uh, putting together Hummers. Uh, it was going to be thrown out, and we, we rescued the robot. It cost us more to transport it than it did to buy it. And uh, it was called Rocco. So uh, this one, we just have, uh, we just have Bolton and, the, and Mr. Junior over here. Got it. Did something happen to the first one? Well, I mean, it, it, it ran its course. So when we got it, it's, it's one of those things where... You're taking a piece of technology that was meant to do one thing and you want to do something completely different with it and it had the ability to do to make the moves and make them fast and make them smooth but it ran on windows 95. <laughs> enough said and at some okay. point it just stopped right and there was nothing we can do about it yeah yeah no i, I completely understand yeah, the, well, Windows 95, it's some, some way, weirdly, a few years ago, I found myself back in a project where the only piece of software that we could use to resurrect some data was only runnable on Windows 95. And we had to try and make a machine work on Windows 95, <laughs> whatever, 15 years after the fact. <laughs> and it was, oh, yeah. it didn't really work. Until we get it. Right. <clears throat> Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting, um, and I guess um, well, thinking thinking back to the Star Wars thing and and having watched finally finished watching the um, Light and Magic documentary series about the start of that company and really the start of visual effects for all of us, uh, it was really interesting seeing basically them. I'm sure going through the same thing of figuring out how to use technology that was meant for something else to do something different in film. Oh, yeah, the, the Dykstra Flex. You yeah. Know, yeah they, when I watched that, the, the first thing I did was come into the office and said, okay, everybody here has to watch Light and Magic. And it's just, this is, this is who we are, but, you know, on a completely different level and in a completely different time. They're, they're, they were doing the same things that we're doing now, but, you know, back in the late 70s. So, you know, everybody needs to watch this and understand exactly, you know, why we're taking all these disciplines and throwing them at, uh, you know, virtual production, what, what we're trying to do here with virtual production. Right. Yeah, it was interesting in, in that series sort of coming towards the end, the end of it, where it went through the today's stuff and had uh, John Favreau on there and talking about volumes and Mandalorian very quickly. That was mainly about the previous um, okay. inventions, but uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that, that's, you know, when we started saying, okay, well, let's take the robot and let's start doing virtual production. That was one of the first things that, that we did when we started looking at, okay, we got to get this data out of the, out of the robot. We're going to, uh, we're going to find somebody who can help us in, in Unreal. And so we just put a little a little note out on one of the Unreal uh, sites and said, hey, 
can anybody help anybody in Atlanta that can help us with this? And we got this guy to come through and, and he talked about it because, yeah, I think I can help you out. Turned out, turned out he worked for profile and, uh, had worked on the camera tracking for the, the first season for the Mandalorian. And he knew exactly how to get our data from the robot into, into unreal. And that just started us down this path. Uh, you know, the first piece that we put out, which was the, uh, the unreal life was us doing a robotic camera move in virtual production and duplicating the same character over. Uh, and that's, that's really where, where we started with this. And the nice thing about using the robot with virtual production, when we have these things where we've got to do the same camera move over and over again, we know it's exactly going to be frame locked and we're going to have, we're not going to have any problems with anything matching. Um, and it allows us to do that. And it also allows us to, as a tool, uh, one of the things you fight in virtual production is the lag that happens between the camera tracking and the LED wall, because by the time you get through with the camera tracking, you may have a frame, frame and a half of, of lag. You go through Unreal, you may have another two frames of lag. You hit the LED processors, and that definitely gives you two frames of lag. So you're about six frames behind by the time the camera sees what the move that you've made. And, and with the robot, what we're able to do is tell it, hey, start sending the data and delay the move. We can tell it to delay the move, and that way we can get rid of any lag that we might have. Interesting. <clears throat> is that based on just a known lag amount? It's, it's based on a, a known lag amount. It's something that you can, uh, you can almost easily quantify by, by taking a look at the time code that's coming out of the camera and piping it through Unreal and then looking at the time code on the wall. And you can see the difference. And that, that difference is that, is that lag that you, you know, you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, makes sense. So how do, how do you like what, how much of your time is R and D versus being actual production? Uh, right now it's a lot more R and D than it is production. Um, uh, it's probably about 70, 30 R and D versus production. Uh, as we're ramping up into, into next year, it's going to be mostly production. Uh, the R and D time ha has ended and it's, it's mostly going to be about production. We've, uh, we have a, a stable working volume now. And uh, it's just about, okay, let's take a look at the assets we're given. Let's see what the VAD has given us and, and going through and optimizing that to, to play on the volume and then taking a look at all the, all the shots and working with the, the director and the DP to, you know, to finalize what we're actually going to shoot on the volume. So you have like times where there's a bit less production work going on and you're able to schedule in your R&D then and have like a list of things that you know you want to bring to future productions and is that kind of how you do it? Yeah, that's how we, that's how we approach it. We're, we, we approach it, uh, you know, at least on the first part of the build for our volume. And this is, I think, the fifth wall that we've built. Um, right. So we're, we approach it as a, R&D heavy up front. What is it that we're trying to accomplish? Like for example, in this build, we, you know, our goal is 120 frames per second, and uh, we want to be able to uh, shoot that on on there. And we've done our testing. We know what we can hit. We know how how hard we have to push, and we now have you know this this stable volume that we can now just say, okay, let's go and just shoot project after project on it. It's the same kind of approach that we took last year on, on our, our last volume. Right. You And do you have an amount of kind of R&D time per production? Do you kind of factor that in knowing that there's, I don't know, known, unknown unknowns going into most projects? Yeah, there, there's always, I like to have, um, you know, ramp up time to, to any production. And sometimes I'm given, uh, you know, 
30 days ramp up time. And sometimes I'm given a week. And if mm -hmm. we're, we're in a week, we're, we're really just shooting in a known situation. We know that, okay, we're not going to do anything special from this. We're running 24 frames per second. And that's all that we're doing. We're, we don't have any triggerable events. We don't have any of that kind of stuff. We're just shooting. Um, other times we've got things where we, we really have to R&D it. If we've got triggerable events, if we've got repeatable things that have to be able to be synced, uh, that, that takes a little bit of R&D to make sure that that's always going to work uh, on the volume. Right. So someone's working with you guys, they should know that if they want to do something new that hasn't been done before, more prep time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you're, if, if it's not something that you, you haven't seen before, then it's going to take, it's going to take more prep time to do that. And that's, that's, you know, with any kind of shooting, you're going to find that on any feature film. If you're doing something that hasn't been done before, <clears throat> then you're going to, it's going to take a lot more prep time to, to sort of get iron the bugs out of everything. Right. What um, what types of, of work are more common um, in the volume for you guys? Well, I mean, the, the things that have been uh, sort of our um, go-to things, especially when we're ramping up on something like this, is we always like to take uh, and use music videos as our, our sort of ramp up on, a, on the volume. So we, we can go in and, and test out new things uh, in a low stage stakes situation by doing music videos. And that's where we've, we've really learned a lot of different ways and techniques of, of using this. And then once we're pretty comfortable with that, then we move on to doing uh, commercials and things of that nature. And uh, we've shot a couple of short films and other projects like that. And we're firmly moving into into series now, right? And and features. Oh yeah, we'll we'll if a feature would like to to book the stage, sure, come on in. We will we'll book the stage. But we've been doing uh, robotic and high speed camera work on features for uh, the last four years, five years. Right. Um. Somebody's asking what uh, type of camera tracking systems you use uh, or prefer to use it with an LED stage. Okay, so this is uh, the this is called the bucket of camera tracking because we have used actually almost every camera tracking system out there. Um, we have uh, in house right now uh, Red Spy system and the Red Spy is uh, working on an inside out camera tracking. We've also used Vicon, which I like a lot. Um, and we have Vanishing Point. And then uh, we've also used the Moses. And I think that, uh, you know, the Moses virtual stars are something that's going to be uh, a really nice feature where you don't have to have the stars put up all, all over the place or on the floor. You can just turn them on on the wall and they never show up in camera. Oh, interesting. Now, how, how does that work? So um, one of the features of a Brompton is, is that you can you can take the same frame and send it to the LED tile uh, in a multiplier. So what you do is you put the multiplier up to four and then you tell the, the stars to be on, say, frame four of the four times multiplier and the picture to be on all the, the three frames before. And so it blinks on the wall and the the camera tracking picks that up but you never see it because the camera is syncing with the wall it's syncing on that first frame right and how many how many frames per second do you need to accomplish that um well we've been doing it uh at 96 frames per second on the wall right and you you're pushing for 120 we're, we're pushing for 120. If we were doing 120, we would not be doing uh, the, the virtual stars. We would be actually using you know, the regular old uh, star field in either the Red Spy or the Moses system. Okay. What, what's the reason if you're a higher frame rate? Uh, 
uh, because then if we're doing higher frame rate, then we can't do the, the flicker frame. Um, so you, right. you have to have all 120 frames per second if you're doing higher frame rate. So you can't use right. the, vir the virtual star tracking. Got it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, what's the, what's the desire for uh, the high frame rate? Because so when you're shooting a lot of tabletop stuff, which is another sort of arm of our business, we do a lot of tabletop because of the robot, you're always shooting somewhere close to 100 frames per second. Um, so we want to be able to do 120 frames per second so that we can accomplish some of these, these shots that would normally require uh, either a build or a location shot and be able to do them inside the volume in a more controlled environment. And that way we cut down on, on company moves. You don't have a, a day of tabletop versus a day of in, uh, you know, in store or in lo on location shooting for commercials. Okay. So that's going to allow you to have less transitions, less time setup time between different types of projects. Correct. Um, Somebody asking another question. How do we get a tour? Oh, all you do is just uh, send me an email and or a, a message and we can we can tour you anytime. That's the great thing about our volume is that this volume is not locked down on an NDA. And uh, you can you can call up and say, I need, you know, three days, four days, five days. And we just put it in the schedule and, and put it in for uh, booking. And so we can give a tour anytime. Fantastic. Well, whoever asked that question, there you go. There's, uh, there's your answer. Sounds, sounds pretty easy. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, what's your, what's your favorite part of all of this? There's lots of different techniques going on here. What's my favorite part of it? Yeah. Or I like mean, your favorite thing to do in virtual production or well, my, my favorite I mean, my real favorite thing to do is shoot day. That's, that's my favorite part. That's where I like to be because that, that shows off the fruits of everybody's labor. We're, we're able to come together as a team and everybody can see, you know, what, what's going on. I love it when somebody finally gets it when they're in virtual production and they, they, they come in and they, they're looking at the wall and they're real confused about this this frustum that's moving around and what's going on. And I go, oh, just, just look at the monitor. And they look at the monitor and they go, how does that work? How is that possible? <laughs> and it's when, when you can, you can really get people to go, wow, how, do, how, how does that work? You know, and really tricks them into believing that they're, you know, in a location. That's, that's what I really enjoy. That's where I go, ah, now we've finally done our job. Right. Right. So you like you like uh, freaking people out with the magic trick. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's it is a it's, it's voodoo. Sometimes it's voodoo. It is a magic trick. Yeah. Um, how do you? Speaking of you know people coming in in that state where they maybe haven't done it before, they're not used to it. They may maybe have some excitement, some fear, some uncertainty. How do you? Um, how do you like to prepare people to come into uh, using these, this way of making movies? Well, I mean, we, we like to bring them in and allow them to, to sort of play with the technology first. And, and that's one of the things that we've been doing with this volume once we got this one up and running is that we've been inviting people in, directors, uh, DPs, other, other people to come in and actually play. I and mean, we just finished a project that we just shot that was really just allowing uh, gaffers and DPs to work on the volume and create something that, you know, otherwise they would not have been able to do and, and learn about how the technology works and what we can do with it and how far we can push it. Right. And so, I mean, that's, that's the way we, we get people over those fears. And once, once they get bitten by doing it, this method with this method, it, they're they're really sold on it. Yeah, so learn learn by experience, by doing, by showing them. Um, I know that you've done a lot of work with 
uh, with helping um, get the imagery on the wall as well and working with end display can you can you tell us a little bit about um, how how that works and how you your journey yeah, has been with end display this this is one of those things end display is, is is part engineering part math and part construction so it, it really pulls on my my experience uh, in in the architecture realm whereas I actually have to design something that can be built in real life on the stage. And it also has to function as a method for, for transmitting uh, our visual information here. So it's really about taking those, that information in and saying, okay, how big of a space do we have? You know, how many pixels are we going to produce? How many computers are we going to need? How are we going to break this down into 50 centimeter by 50 centimeter tiles and and be able to lay this out and and get what we're looking for and so we've we've done a lot of different things we've we've done a lot of configurations for volumes and one of the things that that i've done is actually work on a, a really large in display uh, with a, a disguise system for an experiential space and that space uh, used 32 nodes to do the end display to drive the end display. So it, they can get quite large or they can be as easy as, you know, a single node for tabletop work. There's always some kind of design consideration. What does the shot call for and, and how many pixels are we going to have to produce and at, at, at how far from the camera? Are you, are you able to say which project it was? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's the the Illuminarium. They have a location in Atlanta and they have one in Las Vegas. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, can you can you describe it? Sure. It's a it's an experience center where they're doing uh, projection mapping and not only are they doing just projection mapping and playback, but there's also a component of Unreal where there's interactive uh, real-time content being generated on the floors and the walls and a LIDAR system that allows you to interact with it. And that's one of the biggest things is, is we were able to take in the LIDAR data and translate that data into something that the, un, uh, the Unreal can read. And then you're able to actually interact with the real-time generated objects, whether it be um, flying nebula in, in space or moon, uh, boot prints on the moon to playing with flowers in the Georgia O'Keeffe example. Uh, just lots of different things that you can accomplish with Unreal. It's along the same lines as virtual production, but meant for people to be able to enjoy as opposed to it being a method for filming. Right. That's an experiential as opposed to just consuming linear media. It's really cool that, yeah, the, the same tech um, that drives both and that you're able to create all sorts of different stuff now using the same tools. Yeah, we were we were actually able to expand Unreal uh, in uh, UE427 so that InDisplay had an alpha channel, which is something that uh, InDisplay was never meant to have an alpha channel because it's always meant to be the backplate. So uh, we were able to expand it to create an alpha channel and then be able to overlay that onto other graphics. So we had interactive graphics being generated in Unreal being overlaid on top of playback graphics inside oh, cool. this. Yeah, so in the uh, uh, Georgia O'Keeffe exhibit, you're able to walk through and, and experience her flowers and then also have a particle system that's on the floor and as you walk through this vortex of uh, flower petals form around you as you move through the space and you're able to do that and you're also able to create paint strokes and all kinds of different things very cool that, that sounds really fun oh it's, um, it's a lot of fun and i know that uh you're also a passionate filmmaker yourself and um you often have made uh, and worked on um, independent 
uh, movies. Um, can you tell us anything about that uh, side of what you do? Sure. I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, I, you, you feel like you have to have a project that you're, you're running from beginning to end. And so I, for the last, I don't know, almost 20 years, I have, you know, picked a, an independent film that I've worked on in some capacity or another, either as the, uh, as the lead editor or, um, as a visual effects person or as the colorist, uh, I've even dabbled in the sound department, trying to keep my skills moving, uh, you know, in the film business, you know, all along, always trying to achieve something new or something different. And so I, you know, I, I continue to do different kinds of independent films. We'll, we'll pick one out and, uh, and, and start doing, you know, something on that, whether it's, we're just doing development. We're always constantly developing stories, uh, film, uh, scripts, things of that nature. Some of them get shot, some of them get sold, uh, things of things like that. As, and, um, yeah, any, any notable ones that you, you, uh, can have say that you've shot in, in the volume? No, we haven't shot any, uh, notable ones in the volume. We did shoot a short film, uh, last year that'll be coming out for, I believe South by Southwest this year. Um, and it's called under the infinite and it was right. all shot in the volume. It's, uh, it's a interesting, uh, story and it's centered in a, a crop circle and it all happens at magic hour and the and the great thing about having a volume is that you can have magic hour all day long and you know that one of the things i i said was is okay i'm going to give them magic hour but how many days are they going to shoot magic hour and that was for four days they shot magic hour uh you know 10 hours a day they just you know can't, oh we can get this shot oh look at this we can get that shot so uh if you give it they will take it absolutely yeah it's it's um one of the interesting things i think about this and being able to play in filmmaking where previously it was a bit more prescriptive you'd have to figure it all out first and then just make that and not deviate from the plan whereas now we're in this kind of state where you can do things like that how how much has that affected filmmaking for you in terms of the creative and discovery phase? Um, well, you know, one of the things that it's, it's done for us is, is it's allowed us a, a great deal of, of freedom when it comes to things like magic hour. So for example, if it's, we don't have to rely on what's out in nature. We can, we can adjust things and we can get more fanciful and we can get something just a little bit different. And if the sun is not exactly in the right spot, we can just move it, you know, we can adjust it. Um, you know, when you're shooting on a volume, a lot of times, uh, like what I'm sitting on now, it's, it's really just, it's not a full circle. So we can take and we can move the world around and we can, we can play tricks by moving objects and changing, changing up things. So it, it's really opened up a, a great deal of freedom in blocking when it comes to, when yeah. it comes to shooting. More experimenting. Um, I got a few more questions here that have come in. Um, what, uh, has, there's a lot of talk of AI or machine learning more accurately at the moment. Is that, is there any, parts of the, your process where that's actually making a difference? Uh, not yet. Uh, there's a great deal of experimenting going on in AI around here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> most, most prevalently uh, is the fact that uh, one of our guys has uh, stable diffusion running on one of the machines and is constantly making AI pictures of everybody in the office. Uh, <laughs> That's the best use case I think I've heard of so far. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of that going on, and there's uh, there's been a lot of it. It's been a it's been a way of creating a jumping off point for something from creatively. So mm -hmm. we can get in and we can mess with the AI and get sort of a 
creative jumping off point for certain things. And we've done that on a couple of projects where we're bringing those through the, the uh, development pipeline right now. And then we've got some techniques that we're working on, which I think is going to be very interesting, especially when it comes to creating three-dimensional depth mats and being able to take uh, imagery and plates and create something that can be used for virtual production, but is not a complete world build. So it's a combination of doing stuff with Nerf and uh, 3D depth maps that, that looks like very promising for being able to do some of the, the standard backplate uh, shooting that you would on a volume without having to do everything by hand. Right. But no, um, no AI camera moves on the robot because that wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> well, the last thing we want to do is give the AI a robot to play with. Absolutely. You've got to, you've got to keep the AI in a separate room from the robot so it doesn't get any ideas. Yeah. Um, what's, do, um, what are you most excited about um, in terms of changes in the industry at the moment? Anything, anything that you're kind of researching at the moment that you're really, really keen on? Well, I mean, uh, I'm really keen on a couple of different things right now that uh, we've got cooking in the background. Uh, and that has to do with uh, expanded uh, photogrammetry that, that really captures all of the uh, information that, you know, standard photogrammetry is, is uh, missing with, with cross polarization. And that's something that I'm really excited about. We're able to see some of the objects that we've done testing on and, and really get uh, a sort of a, a new dimension into the lighting and relighting of that object inside of Unreal. And so that looks, that looks really promising uh, for, for the future. Everybody's really hot on, on Nerf, mm. um, but what I've found is, is so far is, is that Nerf is not the be-all, end-all when it comes to creating uh, 3D geometry for the volume. It, it, the, the fidelity is not quite there yet. So there's a, there's a bit of maturity that needs to happen there. So some of the standard, uh, expanding on some of the standard photogrammetry is, is really looking promising as far as object creation and object capture for, the, for a virtual production. You seen Avatar yet? No, I have not seen Avatar yet. It's one of those things. It's it was on the list this weekend, but the but my kids are just now coming back from college and for the after their first semester, so uh, not they didn't want to go see Avatar. Right. Well, then I won't ask you anything about it. <laughs> um, it, it just sprung to mind because there was some forty-eight frame stuff in there, which I know has been. Um, played around with a bit over the years, but uh, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny for all of the high speed stuff that we do, we're we're always looking at things or we're shooting that high speed stuff to be played back at twenty four frames per second. We're never right. really shooting it to be played back at sixty, um, you know, a la Peter Jackson or forty eight, as a, like they did with Avatar on it, some of that stuff, and I. I don't know that that is going to change immediately. The the whole everybody's sort of idea of what persistence of vision means and how it's supposed to look um, is sort of you know kind of wired in our brain, and a lot of people don't like the the uh, the forty eight or sixty frame look for playback. Yeah, it definitely has a different look. It, there's. Uh, sort of uncomfortableness to it but in some ways i think in in that in that movie in places that's probably the, was the intention was to create that kind of feeling so if it's, if it's like used aesthetically as a conscious choice then maybe it can fit but yeah it's it, we've stuck on 24 for a long time for a reason um yeah anything that you want to share with the our listeners any websites or links or things that people can can follow you sure. on i mean you guys can check out uh right media r-i-t-e media.com and see any of the uh, movies and stuff that we've worked on so uh, everything from guardians of the galaxy to i tanya on there for 
for high speed filming. Um, and then uh, take a look on some of the uh, Mark Roberts motion control stuff and you'll see a lot of our show reels, you can, which you can take a look on our website and see our show reels uh, and see the kind of uh, visual effects work that we've done with the robotic camera and look for our short, uh, our Christmas short coming out here at the end of the week on Thursday. It's uh, called The Future Is Now, and we'll be putting that out on Thursday. Well, please uh, share it with us too, and we'll, we'll happily send it on through our channels as well. Yeah, no problem. Fantastic. Well, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for being a part of this. It's great to hang out with you again and yeah, for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You bet. Um, yeah. Thank you also to all our listeners today. Thanks for showing up and listening and participating and asking great questions. You, you can catch us again. Uh, this will be our last one for 2022. So a very happy holidays from CG Pro. And if you can see us, if you're just listening, then you can't see us. But if you can see us, you'll see Kevin's spectacular background with his Christmas tree. So from all of us, including Kevin, um, very happy holidays. And um, we will look forward to seeing you all in 2023. Um, we'll be back with our next episode on January 10th with um, senior technical designer, from Crystal Dynamics, uh, it's Ryan Zingler. And um, we have a games class which is coming up in February. So that's a precursor to that. Um, if you're interested in training in Unreal Engine, uh, please do let us know. And you can follow us at becomecgpro.com. Again, a uh, big thanks to our guest today, Kevin. Thank you. Um, thanks to everybody. Have a, a very happy holidays and get some rest. Um, Make some make some goals for 23. Let's go. I will see you all next year. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.